Steve for Children's Church, Children's Ministry. Please, the rest of us, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Working our way verse by verse through the book of 1 Peter, as Peter writes to these persecuted Christians scattered about in Asia Minor. How are they to view their difficult situations in light of who God is and what God has done? I love that hymn. Great things He has done. To God be the glory. And one of our purposes is to review regularly the greatness of God and the great things that He's done. And Peter in this letter keeps coming back again and again to Christ, His perfect life, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, and how everything works out from that. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Oh, this is part two, by the way. Some of you know that. Because I said last Sunday that we would hit the second part uh, today. So I'll probably review a little bit of the first. You, you know me well enough. But um, seriously, if you were not here last Sunday, the context and what leads up to what I'm going to say today, we, we said last week, I want to thank Bryson for making those available online every week, uh, the sermons that, that, that we preach here. So 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. You have in there one of the reasons why God did establish government. Verse 15, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor or respect all men. Love the brotherhood, that is the church. Fear God and honor the king. That sounds like a summary statement of what God commands and expects of his church. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. This finds favor. For the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So notice already how Peter takes everything we go through to another level. And he says, look, it's not so much about the people who are over you as it is the God who is over everything. So everything that you're in, every circumstance you find yourself in, direct it first and foremost to the God who is supremely over everything. Trust Him with the results. Trust Him to do exactly what He says in those particular situations. And then verse 20. What credit is there if when you sin and you're harshly treated and you endure that with patience? He's like, that's, n- that's no credit. 
He says, but if when you do what's right and you suffer for it and you patiently endure that, this finds favor with God. For you, that is the church, made up of individual disciples of Christ, you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Then quoting Isaiah 53, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, while being reviled, or that is, insulted, he didn't revile or, res- or insult in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Some of the versions there say tree. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian or bishop or overseer of your souls. Father, thank you again for your word. It guides us, it encourages us, it instructs us, it it convicts us because we know, Father, that unlike Christ, we have sinned and fallen short of your holy standard and your holy character. Father, we need your grace to forgive us. We need your spirit to encourage and transform us and lead us into this everlasting way which Christ has set before us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news that we have in Christ. And may we all humble ourselves at your feet this morning as we feast upon your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we read through this text, we see there is a lot that Peter commands that does not come natural to us and is in complete contrast to the culture around us. He uses words like abstaining, keeping our behavior excellent, submission to human authorities, living as free people, living as God's slaves, showing proper respect to everybody loving the family of believers, having reverence and fear of God, honoring the emperor, submitting to masters, suffering for doing good and enduring it, dying to sin, living to righteousness. Stop already, right? That's a lot. Let's be honest. And it's a lot that does not come natural to us. So what I'm trying to to, to show us and show myself in the process is why we should live this way. And then I really believe that as we discover why we should live this way, in that process we will discover how we can live that way. But human beings are always wanting to know why. Why should I submit to authorities? Why should I respect everybody? Do you know the people that I'm around? And on and on. not going to you know, pigeonhole each, each one of these, but... So we recognize already that that because of the extreme difficulty of the commands and the demands he gives us, we recognize that this is going to take more than I've got. It's going to take humility, faith, hope, 
endurance, love, trust, forgiveness. I'm going to have to hammer my pride every day. I'm going to have to die to my ego every day. I can't be shallow here. this, This takes depth. So all of this leads to to this. Peter wraps these commands around the gospel. Peter doesn't say, hey, do all of this. Peter says, do all of this because of who God is and what God has done for you. I think I've read the end portion of this text three consecutive weeks. And every time I get to verses 22 through 25, I say to myself, we should never tire of hearing yet again what Jesus did for us, what he suffered for us, how he faced it, and what God did with that for you and me and the whole universe. It's almost like, and I'll give you an analogy I've used before, it's almost like a a bicycle wheel. It has a hub. And it has all these spokes coming out of the hub. And the spokes are all related rightly to one another because they're attached correctly to the hub. And Peter gives a lot of instructions that's going to come next week about how we live in the home. He's talking now about how we relate to government and the workplace and personal suffering and difficult circumstances. But he he attaches every single spoke of your life to the hub of Christ and who he is and what he's done. If you think this is a lot, Peter's not done with us yet. There's more instruction to come. But what I want to emphasize is that he takes everything back to who God is and what God has done. And so we looked at some of those last week. And what we said was that, number one, we should live this way, all these details I just gave us, because God is sovereign over all. Again, he's not saying so much about the humans you're under as the the sovereignty that he exercises over the whole universe. And the question for you and me is this, do we believe that he's sovereign or not? Do do we believe that he holds the universe in his hands and that he has every king's heart in his hand, as Proverbs 21 says? He holds the king's heart in his hands, and he turns it just like we would turn water wherever we desire it to go. He does that in every person, in every life. We don't need to go back and reiterate the sovereignty of God, but just to picture it, someone once said that imagine God walking around with something very small like a little nut in his pocket. And they say to God, God, what do you have there in your pocket? And he pulls it out and he shows it. And God shows in his hand everything that has been made, everything that exists. That's how sovereign he is. And the second point we looked at last week is not only his sovereignty, but his justice. He's a just God and a holy God. And so when he says, look, in difficult circumstances, continue to trust him. Do not lean on your own understanding, but lean on the justice of God. I know you may have to wait, and you hate waiting. In fact, your fallen appetites, they scream constantly, now and more. Now and more, now and more. You're going to have to time out, stop, wait on God and his justice. He's just and he's sovereign. 
So we have to go back and ask ourselves, okay, do I really believe those things or not? Then begin to put into practice the difficult commands that are difficult to us by nature and work those out in our daily lives. So here's a question. If, if your Christian faith does not make a difference with you under authorities, in the workplace, in the home, as you go through suffering, then let me ask you this, where does it make a difference? If it doesn't affect you in those particular spokes of your life, where does it make a difference? Okay, so let me move on to my other reasons because we're still answering why. And I want to give you two more than an extra one that I thought about during the week because I have more time to study. <laughs> this is part two plus more, okay? Did you hear me say the sovereignty of God, that he is over all? Did you hear me say that he is just? Now what I want to say is God himself has set the example. Everything that I commanded us from Peter, through the incarnation, God himself has already demonstrated everything that he's requiring of us. You've heard it said. I'm not going to ask somebody to do something that I'm not willing to do. Have you ever heard that phrase? You may have used that phrase. God has exercised this to perfection on an infinite level. Listen to what Peter says. Christ suffered for you. Then I want you to, I want you to hone in on that next phrase. Leaving you and what? Example. Do we have an example of how to live this kind of life? Yes, the incarnation of God. We believe as Christians that God came down in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt them. That God took... Durrell read this. God took upon Himself the form of a person, a man. And God did this to lay for us an example of everything that we're talking about and everything that he's demanding. What did he do as this example? The word here literally means he gave us something to trace. Remember when you were learning how to write cursive? You sat there in first grade with your blue horse tablet? Chances are, up at the top of the page, there were these dotted lines that you could then trace with your pencil to begin to learn how to form a cursive A and then a cursive B. I remember thinking, I'll never get this. <laughs> this is difficult. But we were held by having a pattern that we could follow and trace. And now, for some of us who are of a certain ripe age, writing in cursive still, it, it seems like it comes second nature to us, right? Why? Because early on you had an example to trace and you traced it over and over and over. Christ suffered for you and me, leaving us an example that we would, look at the next part, verse 21, follow in his, what? His steps. And he's already stepped this way for you and me and how to respect people, and how to submit to authorities, and how to trust the Father, and on and on and on. 
We are people who believe in him so much that we follow his teachings and his ways. We have in Christ a very real model for how we are to live and respond in our thinking, our speaking, and our acting. Think about this on a human level. It's very important for you as a human being when you're being taught to have someone to model it for you, someone to be an example for us. I thought about Billy's an example this morning of, of persevering and coming to church even when you may not feel like it. I would venture to say if Billy Vaughn could be here this morning, any of us could be here this morning, right? So it helps to have a visual example of some of the things that we're talking about. Now, what is his example? What did he do? One of the questions that comes from this is that when you're in a certain circumstance, and I know this has been overdone to a degree, is what would Jesus do? In every circumstance, in every situation, you need to ask that. What would Jesus do? It became cliche at one point in the life of the church, but, but I noticed that before I can do what Jesus did, I've, before I can ask what did Jesus do, I've got to know what he did. And that's what the New Testament Gospels are about. And that's what Peter is saying. Let's think about what Jesus... Let's, let's trace this out and then, and then he's calling us to follow this example. Well, he committed no sin. And he was never deceptive with his mouth. Well, you and I are already convicted as sinners right there. Look at how utterly unique he is. Listen to this. He traces this out for us as well. When they insulted him, what did he do? He didn't insult back. He did not retaliate. In fact, when suffering, he made no threats. I went to the Braves game one night this week on Tuesday night. Some of this my Wednesday night group heard. and I took Jake and one of his friends and... uh, Let's just say there was a group of guys behind me who were not exhibiting family-type behavior. (laughs) In fact, those of us sitting around them were subjected, I wrote this down so I'd get it right, subjected to drunken vulgarity, I'll put it that way. (laughs) When they got there, they already were on the line, and then they got there and they, hey, guy, that's talking to me, you know, they had no idea they were picking the preacher out of the crowd. Hope you don't mind cussing because this guy beside me has got a filthy mouth when he gets like this. By about the second inning, I was ready to slug somebody. (laughs) I had Terry Harper on speed dial. I was about to tell Terry, come get me, Terry. I've gotten in trouble up here in Atlanta. But I kid you not, because I've studied this text the last couple of weeks, I, I literally thought, How did Jesus do it? How did he do it? Why did he do it? How utterly unique he was, how sinless, how perfect. What a a holy standard that, I mean, I could feel the flesh rising up in me. And I said, I really did. I said, Lord, what am I going to do? It's getting worse. If Bennett had been there, it would have been real bad. (laughs) But he really shouldn't make a difference. But by the fourth inning, they were done. They were gone. Braves getting beat 10-0, and God, God took care of it for me. The curse of the Braves losing when I go to the game continues. 
But that's another story. All I'm trying to do is show to you Jesus truly is the Son of God. He's the only one who's done this. He's the only one who, with this help, can empower us to do it. Look at how far He is from us in our sinfulness and His righteousness. But still, let's not lower the standard. He is the example. And there's a reason God has placed Him as the example. Number one, so that we would be in awe of Him. And so that we would reverence Him, but so that we would also be convicted and recognize that compared to Him and His holiness, I am absolutely depraved and I am of no good in myself. And if we will honestly examine our lives and our hearts and our minds and our thinking in light of His example, God will do that for us. It will give us a deeper love for Jesus and a greater understanding of our own personal sin. He made no threats. Well, how could he do that? Well, he knew the rest of the story. He knew what his father was going to do. And he endured it because, look at this phrase, he kept entrusting. He kept giving it over to the father. He kept going back to the father. This was an ongoing attitude and decision that the Son of God was making in voluntary submission to his heavenly Father and his good, perfect plan. So God is saying, look, in your particular situation, and only you know that, the preacher doesn't fully understand, the Sunday school teacher doesn't fully understand, but God does, and God is saying, in your situation, you trace his example. You submit to what God says to do, and you trust him in his justice and his sovereignty to vindicate you in time, in his time. Hey, it may be in the fourth inning. I don't know. But what is your heart clinging to and confiding in as you face your difficult circumstance? Whatever your heart clings to or confides in, guess what? That's your God. Well, I've got this to fall back on. What is that this for you? For Jesus, it was his just heavenly father i give you i give me a, a warning because i wrote this in my notes we need human examples i thank god that he's given us human examples i had wonderful grandfathers parents friends fellow christians pastors all great human examples that in their time and when i needed it they were great examples to me of different aspects of this but every human being is extremely flawed Every human example falls short. So we can look and be encouraged by human examples, but ultimately we've got to keep turning our minds to Christ and keeping our eyes on Him. Within this, he reviews a point that I made last week. He trusts the Father who judges justly. Jesus was raised for our justification, meaning... His suffering and death accomplished an infinitely greater good for us and others. Thinking of others, the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, past, present, and future, is precious, is perfect, 
It was brought to us by virtue of his example and his trusting of his heavenly father. I know I'm pounding this, but listen, the footsteps of Jesus lead us to and through suffering and death. But they also lead us to eternal life and glory. So sometimes we say first the cross and then the crown. But I really like this, and this was a quote from someone else. I can't remember where I got it. Listen, suffering for the follower of Christ is not a detour, but rather it's the main route. I needed to hear that. Suffering for us is not the exception. It is the way. The exception for us are the times of comfort and joy along the way so that we won't get the wrong idea. This is not our home. This is not our destiny. And here's another thought. I have all these thoughts. If we follow the steps of Christ, we will be an example to others along the way. That's important. To be a Christ-like example. Jesus went about doing good. Likewise, our time and our energy and our opportunities must be directed in this manner. So here's some encouragement from a quote of one of the guys I love to read in here, Ray Ortland. Never give up. Somebody needs you. They need your weaknesses. They need your anguish. They need your bewilderment. They need to see a buffeted Christian go to Christ and hang on for dear life and make it through. They need that from you today, and they will need the memory of this years from now. Therefore, hang on. Did you think of people? I thought of people in my life that hung on and was, for me, a great example of the steps of Christ. So in our lives, we're going to have an opportunity to exemplify, model, and demonstrate all that Peter talks about. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to do this because it's his example. It's his command. He's sovereign. He's just. So we're going to have in our lives times of submission and service, perseverance and humility, Forgiveness and transparency, honesty and confession, repentance, witness, evangelism. I need to watch one, I need to do one, and I need to teach one. God has placed great examples for us along our way. Choose to follow Christ and choose to follow them. Pastor Neil, why live this way? My friends don't live this way. This way isn't easy. People mock me if I live this way. You need to say no to everything else, and you need to do this by seeing the example that Christ set for you when he faced his mockery, his insult, his suffering, his cross on your behalf. Well, that's enough right there. The Incarnation. God came down and did all this for us. And then I'm going to add the two that I promised. See, as you study this and look at this, you discover that what the Bible says is that God did all of this because of love. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he's just. Yes, he's laid the example. 
But he's done this because he loves us. He did all of this for you. So for the Christian, love becomes the great motivator for all the commands of God. We love because he first loved us. And when he opens up Isaiah and he reads what Isaiah does and and what he says about it is that in verse 24, by his wounds you were healed. He makes it personal for those Christians in Asia Minor. God loved us and sent his son. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to do everything that Peter says that he did. The greatest motive was his love. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So why should we do this? We do this because he did this out of love for you and me. Or he didn't know us anything. But he gave us his mercy. He gave us his grace. He gave us himself. And the Son perfectly submitted to the Father. And the Spirit perfectly submits to the Son and the Father in service to us out of love. So once you bring love into the equation, well, that changes everything. That moves it from duty to responding to love and to grace and to mercy. It reminds me of the question, Jeff, you, you brought this up a while back, that the time that one of our sons, uh, I think it was Jake, did something wrong. Sorry, Jake, I didn't ask your permission. I was supposed to do that. Lost his iPad. Bennett comes into my office a few hours later. He says, Dad, is there anything we can do to earn back Jake's iPad? (laughs) And I said, well, I guess between me and you, we could come up with a plan. Jake could earn back his iPad. What I didn't factor in was that Bennett had a selfish reason for getting the iPad back. He wanted to play it too. But imagine the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in eternal love and holiness and glory, discussing among themselves how they were going to redeem and rescue us. And out of love, the Son says, I will submit to all that you lay out, Father, to redeem and win them back. And and there we have the atonement. There we have propitiation, him taking upon himself the wrath of God do our sin so that we can live as free people not depending on who our boss might be or who our grandparents happen to be in time and history but you can be free truly from the heart within in whatever particular circumstance you find yourself in that's what God's after right here a freedom not dependent on situations and circumstances in a sin-cursed, fallen world that will never be right until the new heaven and the new earth. Show me where there are perfect situations here on earth. There is none. That leads me to my last point. Why should we do this? Because of the promises of God. <laughs> He's prom- he has specifically promised all things will become beautiful in His time. He has specifically said... Trust me and I'll work everything together for good. 
He has said there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He has also said, I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. So why live this way when the other way seems like it feels so natural and good because, because of his love and then because of his promises? And then I've found as I've studied through this that once we realize why, then that gives us the power to do it, the how. What did Jesus do for us? He healed the one who arrested him. He served the one who betrayed him. He forgave the one who denied him. He loved the world which crucified him. With his love and spirit and promises and sovereignty and justice and all of that in us, we can be empowered to do the same. Not in order to save ourselves, but in order to express the love toward him that he is worthy of and he deserves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us yet again this great gospel text of who Christ is, what he's done and what now he demands of us not out of any sense of merit to earn or sweat our way into the kingdom of heaven but rather to demonstrate that we get it that that we understand now what you did God in order to justify us and forgive us that you vindicated Jesus who faced such suffering and evil on our behalf. And now that we are not earning our salvation, we now are empowered to live a life of righteousness. For example, to be an example to others as an encouragement along the way. So during this time of invitation, Father, we know you love us and you accept us through the merit and, and righteousness of Christ. So may we turn our hearts and minds toward the cross and what that means for us individually in whatever particular circumstance we find ourselves in at this season in our life. Father, if there's one person here this morning who has never, by faith, accepted Christ as Savior, we pray that your Spirit would move that person to trust and believe and repent and confess and accept this great gift of salvation in Christ. You, Father, would grant the gift of faith as you give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.